Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 92, Dr. Joshua Thoreau on Objections to Atonement Theories. On this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, Dr. Thoreau and I go through the different sorts of atonement theories we discussed in episode 91, and we consider objections to them, and it looks like there are some pretty powerful objections to many of those theories. In the latter portion of today's interview, Dr. Thoreau outlines the new approach that he's taking to atonement theory. This is his own published work towards coming up with a new and better theory, a theory which is truer to the Bible, and which makes better moral sense out of Jesus's once-and-for-all atonement. I have to apologize. I had some significant audio problems with this episode, completely my fault. You'll notice that as soon as the interview starts, um, but you can understand everything that Dr. Thoreau says, and the problems do get much better after about 15 minutes into the interview. I think his comments are very insightful and profound, as profound as anything we've discussed on the Trinity's podcast. Dr. Thoreau, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Thanks again for having me. Last week, when we had a conversation about the subject of atonement, we put out on the table a bunch of different theories of the atonement, different ways of understanding what's going on, in what way this could achieve reconciliation, reunion between God and human beings. And you divide them into the subjective theories and the objective theories, Subjective ones being ones where principally the atonement brings about a change in our own mindset or motivation or something like that. In this episode, we're going to now talk about objections to these theories because we probably agree that at least some of these theories are inconsistent with the others, so they couldn't both be true, they might both be false. And as philosophers, we like to jump in and consider all the options and then start knocking them down. Which ones can we rule out? We're trying to find the truth of the matter, and we don't think they can all be true, at least not all complete, and really getting to the heart of the matter. And so let's just jump right into it. What about the moral influence theories, the subjective theories? Do you accept those? Yeah, so I think that, uh, that there's a number of problems for the subjective theories. As we mentioned last week, uh, certainly there's got to be a subjective element to atonement. Humans, if their sins are going to be atoned for towards God, they've got to be able to change who they are, to become new sorts of people who are willing to love as they were supposed to. Of course, nobody's going to be perfect, but but you've got to make at least some subjective change in that direction. And as we had mentioned last time, the New Testament is very clear that on the Christian view, imitation of Christ is, is really important. There's got to be a subjective element to atonement. But is it the entirety of atonement? I don't think so. Probably not. And the main reason is, uh, again, something we briefly mentioned last time, which is that on the subjective view, it isn't really clear what makes Jesus' death and resurrection so significant. Right? The New Testament emphasizes this so heavily that this is like the key to our salvation. But on the subjective view, it's like, I mean, you can see how his, his dying for his friends would be particularly motivating, right? So it's a great thing. Surely it's going it's to help change us subjectively. But it's not clear that it's really distinctively important to his atonement. He could have changed us without his death probably quite well. So I don't think these theories explain very well 
But subjective theories explain very well what Jesus' death and resurrection contribute distinctively to atonement. Why then not a ransom theory that we were, in a sense, lost over and in captivity to the devil, and God had to essentially trick the devil and win us back from that slavery or captivity? Why, why not just go with the church fathers? One thing we really want out of a good theory of Jesus' atonement is we want a theory that's going to explain what is distinctively important about Jesus' death and resurrection. So I think if we sort of keep our eye on that kind of ingredient or requirement um, and use that as a kind of test for theories, it's a nice way to kind of figure out where some problems might be. So the advantage of the ransom theory is that it does offer an explanation for what Jesus' death distinctively contributes to atonement. What it distinctively contributes is it's the trick that Satan then takes a hold of, and because of that, that uh, because of Satan killing Jesus, that's what made Satan have to give up his claim over humanity. So it's very clear in the ransom theory that Jesus' death does something very distinctively important. The problem with the ransom theory is that it imports lots of, from a Christian perspective, pretty problematic assumptions. So it, it assumes that Satan has some sort of rights over us, that God couldn't just say, all right. I don't want humans to have to suffer eternally under your power. I'm just going to take them, right, and put them under my power. Why couldn't God do that? It certainly seems like he could. Why would Satan have this sort of power over us? So that seems like a theological difficulty. And for that reason, and there's a few others uh, as well, the ransom theory looks like it's probably not the best theory. And I would think that in comparison to some of the other views... It has sort of less New Testament support. Do you think that's true? There is talk of ransom in a few places, but it seems to me it's less prominent than the theme of Christ's victory or taking our place or things of that nature. Yeah, the sacrifice metaphor seems more widespread. You see it in lots of different places. You see it, I mean, right away, you see it in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke show elements of it. You see it in uh, Romans 3, you see it in 1 Corinthians 11. The book of Hebrews is all about understanding Jesus' death as a sacrifice. So that, that seems like a really prominent theme in the New Testament. You see ransom ideas. In fact, there is a bit of a ransom, a uh, hint of uh, ransom in um, Matthew twenty twenty eight, which writes, Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you do see this idea in the New Testament. You don't see that sort of rich narrative where uh, the devil is supposed to have these sorts of rights over us. That's not in there at all. That's definitely a kind of theoretical development. Um, that's the part that's doing a lot of work. But ransoming can just basically mean winning over, uh, bringing along. It doesn't have to be a full-blown ransom situation. And also you would think that if the sacrifice metaphors are more prominent, they kind of clash with the idea of ransom. You don't think of the the goat and the the lamb as ransoms. They're they're sacrificial victims. Not naturally, but you could think of them as a kind of ransom in an extended metaphorical sense, which is that there's something that humans do that in a way frees them from sin. Right? So in a way it is a kind of something that's paid Right, that takes you out of this sinful state and puts you into this non-sinful state. It's something that results in release, just as pain and ransoming result in release. 
whenever somebody uses a metaphor, you got to kind of figure out what the point of it is. Then all the other elements are extraneous. You know, in some of Jesus's parable, if you want to know who this character represents, well, sometimes nobody, it depends. There's always going to be extra colorful details and uh, kind of possibly misleading aspects of the situation. Well, that's why we're trying to see if we can get beyond metaphor. Metaphors are wonderful. There's no problem with them. We use them constantly in life and in religion and, and in theology. Certainly they help us to build understandings of things and theories. That's right. But a lot of us, though, think that, you know, they're kind of like checks that need to be cashed. If we really do understand the point of the metaphor, then we should be able also to say it, in most cases, in literal language. Yeah. So let's maybe take a look at maybe some problems with some of the other objective theories. The next one that we had talked about last week was penal substitution. And philosophers, theologians, lay people have offered many objections to the notion of penal substitution. But the most core objection that many people have a hard time getting around is what we might call the justice worry. The core of the justice worry is this. It just seems radically unjust for somebody who is innocent to suffer the punishment due to somebody who's guilty. So let's take an example. Let's suppose you've got somebody who's convicted of murder, and it's true. This person did murder somebody else. But the perpetrator's mother is in the courtroom and says, no, 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 please, I don't want my son to die. Here, take me instead. I will go and uh, suffer the lethal injection. Let my, let my son go. I think most of us have a really strong intuitive reaction to that scenario. We think that's just ridiculous, right? You can't serve justice in that way. And for a lot of people, when they look at penal the penal substitution theory of atonement, it looks like, according to this theory, that's exactly what God is doing. Yeah, or make, make the story more colorful. The judge says to the bailiff, okay, shoot her. He just guns her down. Right? Okay, you're free to go now. Yeah. I mean, this would be a strange way of justice or... Say I do something to you, I don't know, I, I slander and gossip against you. and I come to your house and I say, Josh, I'm really sorry. I said all these bad things behind your back. And please, would you forgive me? You say, well, I'm sorry, Dale, I can't forgive you yet. Hang on a second. And then you go and you, I don't know, kick your four-year-old really hard and she starts crying. <laughs> like, okay, now, now I can forgive you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this... <laughs> This is not how we think about justice and forgiveness. There's some ways of painting it where it just seems like instead of justice, what this really is is just responding with evil to evil. So instead of really righting the wrong, what you're doing is just committing another wrong to kind of balance things out. And that doesn't seem like justice. Yeah, and the idea that God has to express his wrath to forgive, it's not clear that justice requires that at all. And normally when we forgive, the person who does the forgive is allowed to just kind of let it go. Right. And so you can almost get into this idea that 
God is just really a hothead, you know. He, he, he just has to get it out of his system somehow. And, and so maybe it's best if he does it all at once on, on one victim. But you don't want to think that God is really subject to his passions in that way. So this is related to another kind of objection that's often given to the penal substitutionary theory, which is that it doesn't look like there's really forgiveness on this theory. I mean, what, what is forgiven? Punishment is dealt out. If I suffer a punishment, paid my price, what's been forgiven? Right? You might naturally think, well, forgiveness involves saying, you don't owe me anymore. Maybe you paid a little bit or something like that, or you gave an apology, but, but that's enough. right? At least that's one way of understanding forgiveness. Some people have thought that, or they've used the um, uh, the parable of the the prodigal son to illustrate this point. Right? The prodigal son comes back, and he's really uh, he's upset about having wasted all of his father's money, and he's ready to to repent. He's ready to say, "Hey, I'll just work on as a hired hand. Right? You don't have to treat me as your son. I'll just I'll just be a worker." And he's ready to do this. He's basically ready to offer, you might think, some sort of restitution for what he's done, and. The father just welcomes him in, says, here's my lost son, doesn't even hear the son's plea to offer restitution, and just restores him. And, you know, a lot of people think, hey, that's the model of God's forgiveness. And on the penal substitutionary view, it kind of looks like that's not the model of God's forgiveness. What the model should be on this parable would be the son comes home, the father says, oh, you've acknowledged you were wrong? Okay, now time to suffer punishment to make up for it. Some people cite a verse in the Old Testament somewhere. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And they take that to mean an absolutely strict condition that there cannot be just or right forgiveness, correct forgiveness without something dying. But that, that just can't be right, not only because of our own practices, but surely people must have repented of their sins and been forgiven apart from the old Hebrew regime of sacrifices say in the time of Abraham before the law of Moses, you know, Abraham kicks his dog. He's like, oh Lord, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Well, then he must have been forgiven. And repentance would seem to be the thing that's really strictly required. Yeah, you might think that when God sets up the covenant with, with Abraham and gives the law through Moses, that he then sets up a certain way by which uh, sins are going to be atoned for. And that involves the offering of these, these sacrifices, not only occasional sacrifices to deal with sin, uh, but then also the yearly Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur sacrifice to deal with the sins of Israel as a whole. And even if shedding of blood isn't strictly necessary for good forgiving or righteous forgiving, still it, there could be important value and a real point to these sacrifices. And maybe just the offended party has a right to dictate what the terms of the deal are. And he wants for the Israelites, for their deal, to be this whole national system of, which includes individual and corporate sin sacrifices and other sacrifices. Since we brought up the sacrifices, I mean, I think this is another problem for the penal substitutionary view, which is that the view likes to think that this is a, a really good understanding of how Jesus is a sacrifice. He's a sacrifice because he's suffering punishment on our behalf, like the sacrifices that are killed right, to offer atonement in the Old Testament. But if you look at those sacrifices in the Old Testament that are described in Leviticus, there are many different kinds of sacrifices there, by the way, some of, some of which don't really have anything to do with dealing with sin. Some are Thanksgiving sacrifices or offerings to deal with uh, ritual impurities of various kinds. But some of them are sacrifices meant to expiate sin. But if you look at what's going on there, there's no sense that the animal is like 
suffering punishment that's due to me. There's just no sense of a penal substitution there at all. Instead, what you get is the idea that this thing that's offered is a perfect gift to God, something that's offered on behalf of the human that sort of represents what the human was supposed to be like. And then it's the sort of pure blood from, from that pure sacrifice that then gets sort of sprinkled on the tabernacle and the various appropriate parts to sort of symbolize or maybe even bring about this, this purification of sin, this, this sort of sin that accumulates on the tabernacle due to the wrongdoings of humanity that gets wiped away by the, by the, the pure blood from the sacrifice. So the sacrifice there is more a matter of, it draws on this idea of wiping away sin, not substituting for a just judgment. That, that idea isn't really present in the Old Testament sacrifice. Expiation, like washing clean. So the animal, I mean, they, it has to be a beautiful and healthy and valuable animal. You couldn't give them your gimpy goat, your defective calf, whatever. The sacrifice literally has value to the person who's giving it. They're giving up something of value. And then what happens to it is symbolic of kind of maybe what should happen to the sinner if it's a serious sin. Yeah, but it, it doesn't quite seem like the right sort of thing to kind of to take your punishment or literally stand in for you. It's a goat or a baby lamb or something. And like I said, there's, there's no hint in the text that the sacrificial offering is itself understood to be a penal substitute. For one, one good reason for this is that Leviticus allowed for um, variation in what kind of sacrifices you offered depending upon how wealthy you were. So if you were wealthy, you might offer the best kind of sacrifice, which would be a live animal of, of, of a certain kind. But if you were poor, it was allowed for you to give a sacrifice of grain. And obviously you can't punish. <laughs> it would make no sense for the grain to be standing in. <laughs> Take this, you stupid grain. Uh, uh. Yeah. Yeah. So, for these reasons, the penal substitutionary view faces faces some challenges. Okay, so we've looked at two of the objective theories so far, the ransom theory and the penal substitution theory. And we've seen that both of them face some problems. So let's look at the um, last two objective theories that we've talked about, the satisfaction theory and the Christus Victor theory. Now, there's a lot to be said about each of them. I'm going to kind of treat them as one theory for a moment because I think they both face a common sort of worry. And the worry is this. For Christians, although... A lot of aspects of Jesus' life might contribute to his atonement. His death plays the most central and important role of atonement. We mentioned this earlier. And so a good theory of the atonement ought to be able to take that into account. And my worry with satisfaction in Christus Victor theories is that they don't quite offer a clear explanation for why Jesus' death contributes something distinctively important to atonement. So, for instance, in the satisfaction kind of theory, 
what Jesus offers is some sort of supererogatory act in service of God. But if Jesus is perfect, there's lots of things that he'll do that can count as supererogatory acts in service of God. I mean, virtually his entire life in service of God could count as that. He could be doing lots of great things for us. My worry is that the satisfaction theories and the Christus Victor theory don't quite give a, a very clear explanation of what Jesus' death contributes distinctively to atonement. Because in satisfaction theories, Jesus is perfect. He could do lots of things in service of God that could count as uh, a reparation or satisfaction on behalf of humanity. So his death might be one of those things, but it's not clear why it would play the most important role or a super distinctive role. Now, I should admit, Anselm has some answers for this. I'm not here going to get into the details, but a lot of people have found them to be um, not entirely satisfactory. Christ's Victor model suffers from a very similar problem, which is if G what Jesus is doing is liberating us from sin, it's not clear what his death does that, dis that contributes to that distinctively. Yes, it's a, an amazing symbolic action that indicates that he can defeat death, that those who die and yet follow Christ have nothing to fear in death. Yeah, it definitely communicates that message, and, and that's a good thing. But it's not clear that that's the only way or even that that would be the most important way in which Jesus would defeat the powers of sin. So I'm not so sure that these two theories, at least considered kind of abstractly unless you develop them with further detail, give uh, an ex explanation of what's distinctively important about Jesus' death. I think that's one thing that we need in a theory of the atonement, and it's, and it's one thing that's missing from some of these theories. And Christus Victor, I mean, the victory is precisely reconciling humans to God. Yes, that's a triumph, but yeah, okay, how is that done? You almost might think it's just a description of atonement and not something that reveals what's going on with the atonement. Right, just, an, just another way of stating that we've been reconciled. What is that? Well, it's to be freed from sin, but the key question we want to know is, how does that happen? And you might wonder, hey, I don't think we have a great explanation here. So in the 2014-2015 academic year, you got to be a visiting fellow at the Center for Philosophy of Religion at the University of Notre Dame, and I even heard you give a presentation back in 2014 relating to your own work on coming up with a theory of atonement, and you've come up with some new ideas, maybe trying to push and develop some of the ideas that are out there and see if you can come up with something that makes more sense. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So I've been interested in the theories of atonement for a while. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in philosophy of religion more generally. I've always just kind of wrestled with religious issues and wanted to understand them better and just try to figure out what to believe. And, you know, I think the doctrine of atonement is, is one of the most challenging doctrines to understand, uh, one of the most challenging Christian doctrines to understand. So it's one that I've decided to spend some time thinking about. And what I've been trying to do is develop a theory that gets around a lot of the worries that we talked about earlier today, and yet that also makes sense of A, many of the biblical metaphors for atonement, and B, that incorporates a lot of the advantages of the different theories of atonement. I think there's wisdom in each of them, and that a good theory ought to be able to pull what wisdom there is there from each theory. So the theory that I've developed, and it's still very much a work in progress, and I'm not entirely sure it's going to work in the end, but I think it's interesting and, and promising, the theory that I've developed has two main components. The first component is meant to explain what 
it is that Jesus is giving atonement for. So all of these theories have been assuming that Jesus is giving is atoning for individual human sins, for Dale's sins, for Josh's sins, for each of you in the audience, all of your sins, individually. And I think one problem with thinking that way is, as we saw with the penal substitution view, it's hard to understand how it is that Jesus could be a representative atoning for each of these other individual sins who are different from him, sins that he's not guilty of. So one idea that I have that I've been developing and a version of which I published in a paper recently is that instead of thinking of Jesus as atoning for individual sins, we should think of him as atoning for collective sins or communal sins. That is the sins of a group, a community, a collective, like humanity. Why should we go that way? Well, I think there are some biblical reasons and I think that there's some sort of philosophical conceptual reasons. That is, it helps us to avoid some of these, these worries that we've talked about earlier. So first, let's talk about philosophical reasons for going this way. On this kind of way of thinking, humanity as a whole is guilty of sinning. And each of us individuals have contributed to the sin of humanity. What Jesus is doing is atoning for that collective sin, the that is, the fact that humanity has wronged God. Not just a, let a bunch of individual humans have, but humanity as a group has. And one of the interesting things about collective wrongdoing or collective sin is that if a collective wrongs somebody, there's a lot of ways that that collective could atone for the wrong that's done. You don't have to have every guilty individual that contributed to the collective playing a role in atoning. It could be that you have a representative for the collective that works on behalf of the collective atoning for the collective's sins. So what we can then say is that what Jesus does is he atones for the collective sins of humanity. He is a representative of humanity and he's a representative because he was descended through the line of David. He's a representative because he was also co-creator of humanity with God the Father. So he's kind of an originator of the community. So he's a representative for the community. He is human, so he can offer atonement on behalf of the community. And somehow his work in his life, his death and resurrection, and maybe even his, his um, various work post-resurrection, sending of the Holy Spirit and so forth, can count as his atoning acts for humanity. So we have a really rich sense in which Jesus is the representative for humanity. You can even have a sense in which he's a substitute for humanity. He's doing something as a substitute for what we as a whole owe to God. And so we avoid the kinds of worries that we saw with the penal substitution view, that it's sort of unjust for somebody to atone for the sins of others. It's not unjust in this case for a representative of the community to atone for the sins, the collective sins of a community. So we avoid those kinds of worries, which I think is an advantage. So those are some of the philosophical reasons for favoring this idea that Jesus is a, atones for collective sins. As I mentioned, there's some biblical reasons, too. Uh, we'll go into those shortly. So one difference between your theory and some of the others is it's not individualistic. It works on a group level. One reason why that might make sense is you might think, well, the group of people to whom this atonement is going to apply is indeterminate back in the year 30 A.D., whether or not a person is going to be in it may depend on if a potential person is going to come into existence or if they're going to freely enter into the deal. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about, you know, Christ died for me. 
I honestly don't think that he was thinking about Dale Tuggy at all. Psychologically, it would be strange. Now, you might think in God's plan, every last person is predestined individually and so on, but um, that seems like an attractive feature of it that, it, that it's representative of a group doing something for a group, the boundaries of which may not be settled at the time. That's right. The boundaries aren't settled, so as a group, it can expand in size, it can contract in size. Um, anybody who's uh, descended from earlier members of the human community is going to thereby count as part of it. I think this also makes sense of a lot of things that you see in the Old Testament. For instance, that God decides to save humanity through a community, Israel. He's not out there just to find a bunch of individuals everywhere, although of course he uses individual people. But he has this idea, apparently according to the whole narrative, that he's going to save humanity, bring humanity, reconcile humanity to himself through this community that is going to, in a way, be his agent in the world, be represent, ideally, how he wants humanity to be. And so there does seem to be a pretty heavy emphasis in the Old Testament on communities and on communities being faithful to God. So we've got that. We've got a very common locution in, uh, in the Bible as well as in a lot of um, church fathers, which is that Christ dies for humanity. You often hear it phrased in using that, that that noun for the entire group of humans, humanity, rather than just for me or for you or whatever. Although you do sometimes find those locutions too. I think maybe the most interesting uh, and important biblical reason to, to maybe move in this direction is I think that thinking about Jesus' atonement as an atonement for collective responsibility helps us to see how Jesus' atonement is really a sacrifice in the Old Testament sense. So the book of Hebrews, as well as other places in the New Testament, compared Jesus' atonement to the uh, Yom Kippur sacrifices, the sacrifices that the Jewish people performed one day per year that were supposed to atone for the sins of Israel. What's interesting about that sacrifice, that set of rituals, is that the text is clear that it's an atonement for collective sins. It says, for the sins of Israel, the group. And this is the most important day in the Jewish year. The day when God, through the action of his priests, carrying out this, this sacrificial ritual, completely cleanses the tabernacle of all the sins of Israel. So I think there's clear marks in the Old Testament that this really important sacrifice is concerned with collective sins. And so if the New Testament thinks of Jesus as being a sacrifice like the Yom Kippur sacrifice, it makes a lot of sense to think of Jesus' um, active atonement as being for collective sins too. Yeah, there were individual sacrifices offered under the law of Moses, but some of the big yearly ones were nation level. Really, the entire people defined as the descendants of Abraham. This is a more open-ended set. Of course, you could get yourself into that. You could convert, even if you weren't a descendant of Abraham, you could still convert into the community. But now it's even more open-ended. It's easier for people to get in. Right. I think this is a powerful point. You would expect it to be... A collective matter if indeed it's very much like the old animal sacrifices. Yeah. There's another way in which this theory that I'm developing makes sense of how Jesus' work is supposed to parallel the Old Testament sacrifices. Uh, and I want to get into that because um, I mentioned that there were sort of two important aspects of my theory earlier. One was this idea that Jesus is atoning for collective sins. But just if all we had was that, we'd still have a question, which is 
how is it that what he does actually atones for collective sins? We still need that, an answer to that question. So that's why I have the second part of the theory. So what's my answer to that question? My answer draws a parallel between what Jesus does and what the Old Testament sacrifices do. My thinking on here has been really guided by some reflections on some recent scholarship on Old Testament sacrifices. So uh, Jacob Milgram's commentary on the book of Leviticus and the Anchor Bible series, a uh, recent book by Jonathan Clawans called Purity, Sacrifice in the Temple, where he has a very interesting discussion and understanding of why uh, these expiatory sacrifices were, were significant to the ancient Jews. So I think that the Old Testament sacrifices should be understood in the following way. When a sinner recognizes that he's violated one of God's laws, he realizes that according to the law he should offer this sacrifice. So what does he do? Well, he's told that he's supposed to have um, a sacrifice that's pure. Right? So if it's an animal, it's got to be unblemished. And what he does is he takes it to the temple. It is um, offered to the priest who treats it in the right sort of way, sacrifices it, sprinkles the blood in the tabernacle in the, in, in the right kind of way. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, first, I think that it is significant that the sacrifice is said to be pure or flawless or unblemished. I think that the sacrifice represents how the the agent, that is the person offering the sacrifice, should have lived. They should have lived in an unblemished, pure way, but they didn't. So bringing forth the sacrifice to the temple is a way of sort of confessing and repenting, saying, no, I've, I've, I've made a mistake. This is how I should have been. Now, that offering also constitutes a sort of gift to God, and God uses that gift to communicate to the, to the guilty person that his sins have been forgiven. How does that happen? Well, this is where the slaughtering of the animal comes in. The animal is slaughtered, and it's the blood that is used as the sort of cleansing agent on the places in the tabernacle that have been stained by the sin. So the blood, this thing that represents right, the life in this pure sacrifice, is covering over, wiping away the death that has potentially come upon the community due to this individual's sin. So it's a symbolic gesture that God uses to communicate to the sinful person and also to the other people in the community who are watching that this sin is dealt with. So me, if it's me coming to give me the sacrifice, I can feel, I can sense that God has now acted on my behalf by accepting what I've done and declaring that my sin has been atoned for. Now there's one other thing. I think that the, the, the sacrificial process also acts as a kind of reparation or satisfaction towards God. And the reason for that is that it would take a lot of work to raise animals, to pick out the one that is flawless. And in doing that, one is acting like God. One is sort of like watching over the flock, right? Trying to raise them well, picking out the ones that are good. So I think that this, this sacrificial process also, it helps the guilty person to actually, in a way, act like God, to imitate God in their raising of animals and their choosing of this, of this um, perfect one. So it's a kind of reparation in that the offerer is imitating God, which is how they were supposed to be all along. There's a real sting to it. You automatically kind of sympathize with the animal. Here it is getting its throat cut and its blood is gushing out. Maybe it falls down or something. And I mean, why not, you know, burn a pumpkin? Why, why slit a living thing's throat? 
Well, you might think, well, it's because it's an appropriate token or symbol. Do you think that plays into... You've mentioned several aspects of it, but this is an obvious one, I think. Yeah, I think that the reason it's an animal is because of the, the symbolic power of blood. Blood represents life, and that's very clear uh, in, the, in the Old Testament scriptures. And sin has a consequence, which is death. So the idea is that if the community sins enough... This is going to lead to the death of the community. God will eventually leave the tabernacle, let the Israelites basically be attacked and destroyed by wild animals or by other kingdoms, right? So for them, sin, sin leads to death. And so you've got this kind of death that's sort of hovering over the tabernacle, right, due to the sins that have been there, right, or at least this potential death, right? And so blood functions as a really powerful way that God can use to communicate that these sins have been dealt with because the blood symbolizes life covering over wiping away death so yeah I think that's why it's you know it's it, it's animal sacrifices that are used rather than say pumpkin sacrifices although it's important to note that there was some flexibility in the um, Old Testament sacrifice to allow for um, for poorer people to to not have to give a, a living sacrifice but still there's this ideal right the the, the best sort of sacrifice right is the the one that really carries, I think, the, the, the richest symbolism is, is the animal sacrifice. I mean, here's another aspect of it. It wasn't an animal that we dislike. It wasn't a rat or a weasel. Right. It was a valuable agricultural animal, and moreover, one that's kind of cozy and cuddly and likable. That, that, too, affects us. You know, take, take that, you snake. If it was a snake, like, whatever, <laughs> step on it. I'll yeah, step on yeah, it, you know. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, yeah, this is another way in which it's, it's a kind of a reparation because the, um, the sacrificer has to give up this thing of great value. So they're sort of recognizing that they've done something that was serious. And they sort of acknowledge the seriousness of it by offering this thing of great value to God, which God then uses to communicate to the offerer that, that his sins have been, have been dealt with. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step -step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org slash blog slash review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. How do these insights then help us to understand the once-and-for-all sacrifice of the man Jesus? So the question you might be asking here is, why not just think that Jesus' sacrifice is just another sacrifice and we need to keep offering sacrifices again and again just like the uh, Jewish people had to do in the Old Testament. That's a good question. 
So on the Christian view, uh, Jesus' sacrifice is sort of the perfect sacrifice, that these older sacrifices could only sort of prefigure or mimic in some weak way. So how, do, how are we going to understand that? What, what does that mean? Well, here's one way of interpreting it. If one of the things we want out of atonement is sort of adequate reparation that's going to transform the guilty person into one who is sincerely going to seek the good in the future, you might think that the Old Testament sacrifices didn't do a very good job of that, right? Yes, we do imitate God according to the way the sacrifice is described by raising animals, right, in the right sort of way, acting like God is sort of the shepherd over us. Does that really change me morally? That's not so clear. Whereas you might think that there's more power in Jesus' blood. Why is that? Because his life didn't just sort of represent the way that humans were supposed to be, like, say, the, the goat that I was going to offer sort of represented how I should have been. Christ, Jesus' life actually embodied the way humans were supposed to be. He lived it out, like, as well as one could, because, of course, in the Christian view, he was sinless. And indeed, he showed the ultimate devotion to God's will by being willing to follow that will all the way up till death. So this is one way the sacrifice would be more valuable. He gave an actual example yes. of a sinless life rather than something that just very kind of superficially represents yeah. one. I mean, a lamb without blemish, I mean, that's yeah. good, but yeah. it's just <laughs> it's just a physically healthy lamb is all yeah. it is. Although it, it does sort of represent how I, how humans should have been, it doesn't represent it as vividly as Christ's life does. Indeed, I, I would I would say that Jesus' life doesn't just represent, but it, it is an embodiment of how humans should have lived. You might think his sacrifice is then sort of more fitting. But here's a question, I mean, how is it going to change us, right? Is this, this is supposed to bring about moral transformation in us as well? And I think it does that. We can take advantage of some aspects of the subjective theories of the atonement and say that his living that life and it being presented to us the way that the Gospels did is itself a way of transforming us. But we can also draw on another aspect of the New Testament's description of Jesus, which is that he sends the Holy Spirit to assist his followers and to guide them. So I think his sending the Holy Spirit, I think we think of that as part of his ministry. It could even be part of his atoning work. It's a way of his making his life efficacious in his followers. There's another aspect too, which is given his resurrection and exaltation, it says that he serves as a mediator between God and man. And so then again, that's another help to living according to God's will. It provides access to God and presumably extra favor, if he's pleading your case, presumably extra favor is thereby obtained. What, what, is it, what does an intermediary do? Yeah, that's right. And notice again, he would do that in a way that the Old Testament sacrifices wouldn't wouldn't quite do or would do in you know but a sort of pale, pale comparison way. Again, we're, we're saying all this from the Christian perspective here, trying to understand the Christian doctrine. If we were having this conversation from a Jewish perspective, of course they might raise objections to this. Okay, so to sum up the theory that I've presented, just briefly, the idea is that Jesus atones for the collective sins of humanity. How does he do that? Well, he does that by leading a morally perfect life, culminating in his death, which is part of what makes him having lived a perfect life because he's willing to follow the uh, life of, of perfect love all the way until death. And that kind of action makes him the perfect candidate for a sacrifice. He not just represents but embodies how we should have been. 
And so God is happy to regard that as our sort of reparation or act of atonement to God for human sins. And the way he acknowledges that he accepts it is the same way he acknowledges, according to the Old Testament, that he accepted those other sacrifices. He allows Jesus' death, and the blood particularly, that's shed in Jesus' death, to represent the wiping away of death due to sin. And so Christians can, can rightly say then, they're saved by the blood of Christ. Why? Because God has accepted Christ's life and his death as an adequate atonement for human sin. So is this a fair encapsulation of what your, what your theory is? It's that God has freely set up a deal, a means by which we can receive forgiveness. And part of that deal is there needs to be a public sacrifice that's so valuable and so fitting that it never needs to be done again. And powerful, that it actually can, has some power to bring about change. By powerful, you mean it it affects us, yeah. uh, affects our motivations. Yeah. Maybe that well, that's maybe that's part of what makes it fitting. Yeah. So, the way the atonement works is by a kind of congruence between what we've done, who God is. Uh, maybe it's not the only way. Maybe it's not the only possible way. There isn't anything maybe self-evident about it that you would have predicted beforehand like in 1000 BC or 500 BC. But out of all the possible ways, it looks like it's a super good way and it works because God has just made this the condition. Yeah, I think that's right. So on the kind of view I've offered, it's different from Anselm's because Anselm thought that it was sort of necessary that atonement had to go about this way. And that might be true. I mean, it's consistent with my view, but it's consistent with my view that that's not the case, that that all it is is it's, it's just it's it's an especially fitting way given the way that God has chosen to interact with humans in the past and in fact I think if we understand the theory the way I've suggested all along God is trying to offer or present a method of atonement for humans that humans can understand and that they can enter into and grasp and feel the power of I mean I don't think that in the Old Testament like the uh, blood of the sacrifices had some sort of intrinsic power to wipe away sin. I, mean, I don't think that's the case. I don't think we have to accept that's the case on any of these theories. It's rather that God was willing to accept that as the means for wiping away sin because it communicated very vividly the wiping away of sin. So God is in a way choosing how he's going to interact with us based on what's going to actually communicate to us what he wants to communicate to us. And so Jesus' sacrifice does communicate to us the same thing, in part because he's drawing on, he's patterning, Jesus is patterning what he's doing on the way that God had communicated to humans in the Old Testament. Dr. Thoreau, this idea of atonement, this theory of atonement that you're constructing, does it require that Jesus has a divine nature? That's a really good question, Dale, and I, I know that's an important question for you. I suspect the answer is yes, although um, I definitely need to think more about that. Here's one reason why. Not just any member of the human community could do something to offer atonement on behalf of the community. It'd have to be an adequate representative. Let's say we've got a company who has uh, wronged our society by polluting the rivers. The company can't atone in just any old way. It can't be that, let's say, a janitor says, oh, I give up my job, right? 
that's going to be enough. I mean, this is just not going to do it. For one, obviously, that's just not sufficient atonement. But for another, he's just not an adequate representative of, of the, um, the company. So I think for this to work, you've got to have an adequate representative for humanity. So what would it take to be an adequate representative? Well, you have to be human. And you have to, ins- I think, in some sense, have some sort of dominion over humanity. So, like, I don't think just any old... I mean, suppose we form some world government, right, at some point, and the president of the world government said, oh, I'm going to do this thing to atone for the sins of humanity. I don't think that would quite work. They wouldn't be a representative for humanity. What, what, um, what they did doesn't really bear any important relations to what lots of sinful humans and groups have done throughout history. So I think what we'd need would be a representative, first of all, that's sinless. We've got to have that. That's human. We've got to have that. And that would have some sort of appropriate authority over humanity. And I can't think of any other good option aside from one who's played a role in creating humanity. And that looks like someone who's got to be divine. So I think you probably have to have a God-man here. Dr. Thurow, where can we find your article that you mentioned that you've published on this? Well, it just came out in an online journal called the Journal of Analytic Theology. Just Google that. You'll find it, and uh, it's in the recent volume. Great. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Today's thinking music has been the track Clover by Little Glass Men. You can hear that song and find links to the song and the group at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Also, don't forget to leave your feedback there for us in the comments section. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.